Friends, welcome to Theology for Teachers, a podcast for Catholic high school teachers. I'm Ed Hanenberg. With us today is Dr. Krista Stevens, who's here to talk about teaching racial justice. Dr. Stevens is Ansfield Wolf Fellow in Diversity and Christian Social Ethics at John Carroll University. Welcome, Krista. Um, Krista, you wrote your doctoral dissertation on the integration of Spring Hill College, which is a Jesuit school in Mobile, Alabama. How did you land on that topic? Uh, kind of a roundabout way, actually. Um, I grew up in the South, which is part of the reason why I went to Spring Hill, and I grew up as a Catholic in the South. So I think in my kind of narrative upbringings, this always race was in the background, right? Because mm-hmm. growing up in Alabama, there's such a, a, a bad history of racial injustices and the civil rights movement and those kinds of things. But I never really thought very specifically about how that tied into Catholicism and theology in the church. So it wasn't actually until grad school when I was working on my doctorate, um, I was in a U.S. Catholic Studies class and uh, a professor of mine was like, oh, you have this really unique background as a Catholic in the South and you have this interest in race, so kind of see what you can do to put those things together. So I started researching and I had no idea that Spring Hill was the first school to integrate. Like It never came up in my conversations while I was an undergrad there. Mm. So it was kind of a surprise to me that they had kind of been on the forefront of this movement. And so I kind of dug a little deeper into it, and there wasn't a whole lot written on it. Um, Someone had done a a dissertation in a history program, just looking at the historical kind of aspects of what was going on. But no one had done a lot of work looking at kind of the theological underpinnings of what Spring Hill was doing, particularly in regard to solidarity, some ideas that were coming down from the Jesuits, um, and then kind of just the general movement within the Catholic Church in the 50s and 60s as well, Uh about being a more world-engaging church. Okay. Um, and so it was just a really kind of interesting uh, place where all of my kind of background in both my real life and my the- theological background kind of all came together okay. in a really neat way. Interesting. So you were, so uh, this wasn't just a, a historical dissertation where you no. were looking at events that happened, but you were trying to get at the underlying theological impulses? Yeah, so one of the kind of my main kind of dialogue partners in the dissertation was Brian Massengale, who is a Catholic priest, a black Catholic priest. Um, and one of the challenges he has raised, he's not the only one, but kind of the kind of focal speaker here, uh, one of the challenges that he's raised to the Catholic Church is, you know, the church certainly condemns racism and is anti-racist and for justice and human dignity and those kinds of things. Um, but he really challenged the church to do better in recognizing racism as a social and structural issue hmm. and not just a person-to-person right. kind of issue, right? So for Massengale, while those types of person-to-person animosity issues around racism do exist, right, that we know that they do, but by and large, that's not how racism functions in our contemporary society. So I approached it more from a perspective of kind of social and structural sin, the social justice aspect of it, um, I brought in liberation theology and their tools of analysis to really get at both, you know, the social problem of racism, but also kind of the theological lens that the people at Spring Hill were using to justify why they should integrate Spring Hill when, you know, in the 50s in Alabama, that was a big risk. Yeah. Um, and so kind of really from the top down, from their father general at the time, he was writing a lot about solidarity. Um, kind of working out of the workers' movements in Europe, and so that filtered down into the Jesuits in the U.S. Uh, and from that, they had some major players who kind of built off of that call for solidarity and applied it to racial issues. Interesting. Um, in the South. Interesting. 
I, I want to back up just a minute because yeah. I'm interested in, in the, this distinction that Massengale makes between the interpersonal and the social or structural because I know very few people would admit, at least out loud, <laughs> that they're a racist. Right. Um, and that um, I think that that's, it seems to me one obstacle in talking about race and racism because there can be a tendency to say, well, I'm not racist. I don't know any racist. Yeah. How do you help people, um, students or others, move beyond that kind of initial sort of reaction, like, well, of course the racist ideas are bad, to recognize what Massengale calls the, the social or systemic or structural? Yeah, so Massengale talks <coughs> a lot about racism as a cultural phenomenon, right? And so he kind of encourages us to look in a big picture in the narratives that we've been raised in, media exposure, cultural exposure, how all of these things shape perceptions of race and particularly shape white people's perceptions of race since white people have kind of had the dominant narrative and power historically, right, in mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. um, what I like about Massengill is when I bring this idea to the students, he's very careful about not saying, look, all of you are racists mm -hmm. and you just don't know it, right? He is saying most, again, white people are uh, affected by what he calls unconscious racism that just kind of filters into our cultural narratives just by virtue of being white people in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he says, hey, that doesn't make you a bad person. What it does mean is that you need to look more deeply at your concepts, your stereotypes, um, how you might perceive people of color in ways that you don't even realize that you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I found this very helpful with students in that you know, no one wants to be called out as a racist, as you said. And if you try that in the classroom, you're going to turn students off right away. Oh, of course, right? yeah. Uh, and so Massingo frames it really nicely where, hey, this is a problem. All of us are part of this problem. It's a hard problem to eradicate because we're often not aware that it's a problem that uh -huh. we have. But let's be aware of it and then move on from there. So, so concretely, like, how do you do that? How do you, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying, like, how do you draw attention to sort of like concrete examples of unconscious yeah. racism? So, I mean, I, I've done this a couple of ways. Um, in one class, I've actually had students keep uh, what I called a, a racial experience journal. Um, and I had them, over the course of six or seven weeks, just take note of either their interactions to people of color. So how might they have responded if they're walking down the street and a person of color is approaching them? Um, really pay attention. Did you have some sort of feeling? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it neutral? Maybe you didn't have a feeling at all, but uh -huh. think about that. Uh -huh. um, if you see homeless people on the street, do you react differently towards the person's color? Um, are you more sympathetic to a white panhandler than to a person of color? Uh, and then I also ask them to pay attention to how people of color are portrayed in the news uh, and TV shows that they watch on a uh -huh. regular basis. And then um, in their own social circles. So like, are people making jokes that are slightly offensive, uh -huh. um, but kind of you know racial jokes that people are laughing at? Uh -huh. Does that suggest any sort of kind of cultural bias towards people of color? Even if people aren't meaning to do harm and are trying to be funny, uh -huh. well, that joke comes from a stereotype okay. that's coming from something. Right. Um, so that's one way. I also try to give concrete examples. One of the examples that Massengill gives actually, he identifies uh, right after Hurricane Katrina, two photos um, from, I don't know what press, but a major press organization. And one photo showed a picture of two black men carrying groceries, and one photo showed a picture of two white men carrying groceries. 
uh, the picture of the black men carrying groceries, the caption read, uh, identify them as looters, right? Looters after Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. uh, with no other context, right? Mm -hmm. um, the picture of the white men said, two men find groceries after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And so I asked my students to think about what those captions mean, um, how they might shape our perceptions of people mm -hmm. uh, in situations like that, uh, why whoever did the captioning, assuming he or she is probably not blatantly racist, why might they have chosen to caption both pictures like that? Right. Um, and does that tell us anything about kind of right. common stereotypes around uh -huh. people of color? Yeah, so just that raising awareness that, and, and a couple of things going on there, it seems like one is, a, is, is I could imagine a student um, sort of getting into the, the kind of objective observer, sort of analyzing the culture, critiquing it, or, um, but the, the journal exercise is, is asking for, I mean, I, I would think if it's gonna be successful, very brutal honesty. Yeah. And um, we're so good at self-deception. What have you found in those journals? I mean, is there, have you found ways to, uh, I mean, I mean, thinking like, how do you grade them? Because if you want yeah. genuine <laughs> reflection on not what their friends are saying, right. but how I reacted. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the grading part, it's if you did it in a good faith effort. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, gonna, yeah. You're great. Um, but I also, you know, we had discussions about the journals in class, but I was very clear. You're under no obligation to share anything. I was going to read them, but you were no, under no obligation to share anything with your classmates. Okay. So there was some level of kind of protection okay. there. Um, but I also, from the beginning, was very upfront about kind of my own um, identification as a white person, right? Mm -hmm. And also particularly as a white person growing up in the South where those stereotypes are still very real and very present mm -hmm. in sometimes very explicit ways. Uh, and so I talk about my own journey of, of kind of recognizing my own biases and how I react to certain people um, in ways that are very uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. But recognizing that it's important that I recognize that and mm -hmm. push deeper into where that's coming mm -hmm. from. Um, because again, you know, as we said, the last thing we want to do is have students feel like they're terrible, bad, racist people, right? right. But to help them realize that almost all of us work with stereotypes and biases that we're not always aware yeah. of. All of us. All of us. Yeah. Everyone does, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, myself included. Right. Um, and so I would share stories from my own upbringing and things I'd heard growing up and how that certainly affected my kind of perceptions of people and how the hard work of kind of undoing those things uh -huh. and that again the doing of the work is the good part uh -huh. right um, and you're not a bad person if you have to do the work right you're moving in the right step of kind of untangling some of these narratives that we've right. been brought up in right you had a, this great um, uh, article on the daily theology blog about owning discomfort <laughs> I assume that's kind of what you're talking yeah. about here. What do you mean by owning discomfort? So, you know, I've taught classes in the past that were specifically on racial justice issues. Like, that's the whole point of the class, uh -huh. right? Um, and white privilege and so forth. Um, and standing there on the first day saying, I know this topic is contentious, I know this topic is hard, um, especially in our current kind of political reality, this topic has taken on even more relevance. I recognize that we will have disagreements about this conversation. And I'm gonna be very upfront, I'm uncomfortable with this topic, not because I don't think it's important to talk about, but because I've come to recognize my own 
stereotypes and biases that have kind of grown up in me. Mm-hmm. And so when you're sitting there, you being the students, when you're sitting there feeling guilty or thinking you're a bad person, I know what you're feeling, mm-hmm. right? And you're not a bad person and we're not trying to make mm-hmm. anyone feel guilty. Mm-hmm. We're trying to grab hold of these things, identify them, right? Mm-hmm. That's the most important part. It's one of the reasons why Massingale says this type of kind of unconscious racism in many ways is more dangerous than explicit bias because if you're not aware of a problem, you don't do anything to address it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to set up the class as kind of our long goal is to start with these feelings of discomfort that we're all having, right? Mm-hmm. Don't think that you're the only one having this feeling. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to move past mm-hmm. it and kind of be more constructive. And, and part of it, I think, you know, my experience with students, it's not just um, being made to feel guilty that's, that's there or being made to feel like a bad person, but a kind of uh, reaction to mm-hmm. being put in that position so that um, almost a kind of a resentment at being asked to think about this. Yeah. You know, like you said, I didn't choose to be born white or born where I was. <laughs> I'm not oppressing anybody. Right. I, I, what do you do when you run into that in the classroom? That, that, that becomes not just a, um, a, a discomfort for the student, but because that's often as a teacher, just be, what I worry about is making, <laughs> making things worse by kind of yeah. hardening <laughs> a kind of a right. resistance right. to uh, talk about racial justice. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard, and what I tell students again from the beginning, these first couple weeks are going to be hard. So, but if you're really interested in this, stick with it, we'll work through all of this together as a class. Um, I have had students walk out of class before. Um, they've always come back, so I've never <laughs> lost them completely. Um, but I get that, too, and I'm not personally, I don't take that personally. Uh-huh. I get that, you know, young people are, are dealing with a lot of things, with particularly their identity formation and what they believe. And to push back against something that's so ingrained in them, it's really hard to deal with. Um, But that's also why I try to bring in examples of things that may have influenced them that they weren't aware was influencing them. Such as? Such as like media coverage and the news and how Uh people were portrayed on the news. Um, Or, you know, uh, something came up with with, uh, Michael Brown. You know, there's a lot of, of... news stories about the pictures that the news chose to show of him, right? Mm-hmm. He had a graduation picture, right. and then he had a picture where he was holding some illicit substances or some, something like that. And the news chose, by and large, to show the negative picture, not the positive picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting students to say, well, why is that, right? Why would the news focus on this? What is their kind of goal in doing this? And what I think this hopefully helps students realize is that I don't want to say they're not at fault because then that means that you can't take ownership over changing something. But in some ways, they're not at fault, Mm -hmm. right? They've been brought up mostly in homes where they're taught Mm -hmm. racism is bad. Mm -hmm. We treat everyone equal. But there are all these things filtering in that they have no control over oftentimes Mm -hmm. that are still shaping their thoughts. And so helping them see that or at least learn to look for it um, is really important. And and when you move to the structural dimensions, Um, th- that uh, I know I feel this that th- th- they become it, it seems so big so yeah. such huge problems um, insurmountable overwhelming mm-hmm. I kind of get par- yeah, paralyzed yeah. do you have suggestions as to how to kind of help once you've come to that then that moment you know you've moved through that process of consciousness raising and, and looking at kind of asking sort of structural uh, uh, questions mm-hmm. 
how do you prevent the kind of um, uh, paralyzation that can... <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. And, and I don't know that I have a perfect answer because I often feel kind of overwhelmed yeah. as well. But I think what's really helpful, particularly working with students and, and again, young people who are right on the cusp of adulthood and going out into their jobs and becoming voters and those kinds of things, is helping them, again, create kind of a long view, right? Mm -hmm. So just by taking this one class on racial justice or Catholic social teaching or whatever, you're not going to change the world, right, with just this one class. Mm -hmm. But how can you take these tools and allow them to shape your decisions down the road? Mm -hmm. um, so when you go to college, what do you focus on? Um, who do you vote for when you come to voting age? Mm -hmm. Thinking even longer down the road, what kind of career do you want? Mm -hmm. um, how might that help address some of these issues? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of young people feel that they don't have a lot of power, yeah. and unfortunately, they don't have a lot of power, uh -huh. right? At least on a political scale. Yeah. Um, so it's both helping them see the long view that when they do have power in jobs and politics and voting, yeah. Yeah. Can you bring this with them? Yeah. But also on the small scale, what can we do in our schools? Um, are there issues within your own schools that you see uh -huh. that need to be addressed or rectified? Uh -huh. um, and if there is, how can I help them kind of pull together either diversity groups or more broader school conversations about these things to raise greater awareness? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so helping them set up on a smaller level things that they can shape and have power over. Uh -huh. And then helping them see kind of long term how all of this can be building towards something uh -huh. down the road. Yeah, wonderful. You, you, and you get, you mentioned some really uh, sort of helpful strategies for the classroom. You mentioned the Brian Massengale book, which is racial uh, just racial justice in the Catholic, Catholic Church. Okay. Yeah. Are there other readings, um, uh, books, narratives? Particular articles that you that have worked really well with students in getting into some of these. Do you tend to do you tend to choose sort of textbook type, academic type articles, or are there narratives? I'm just curious about uh, suggestions. More, yeah, I tend to do more narratives. Um, Massengill's book I use pretty much as a piece uh -huh. because he sets up the problem and then offers a way of addressing the problem. Okay. Right. So it's a really nice kind of bookending yeah. issue. Um, beyond that, I use a lot of things. I use podcasts quite a bit. Um, in particular, there's a, a This American Life podcast called um, The Problem We All Live With. It's a two-part series on segregation and education, uh, and lower education, so middle school, high schools, okay. uh, and it, communities' attempts to integrate the long-term effects of that. Okay. Um, and that's... That's set in Cleveland, or this story? No, no that no, one's it? set uh, in St. Louis and maybe Connecticut okay, okay. as well. Um, but uh, speaking of Cleveland, there is a Cleveland.com is doing a kind of an over a longer piece on uh, called a Greater Cleveland. That's what I'm thinking. At, of. Yeah, looking at um, particularly communities of color, uh, poor communities of color in East Cleveland, and documenting their day to day lives. And what I like about it, they, they do this in a very respectful way. They're not sensationalizing poverty or race or anything like that, but saying, these are real families who have real problems. What can we as a greater community do so that Cleveland itself is better, right, as mm -hmm. a whole? Mm -hmm. um, and then just some other authors I would throw out, uh, in addition to Massengale, um, Sean Copeland writes a lot about race uh, and justice in the Catholic Church, and she's pretty accessible mm -hmm. uh, as well. And then, um, Joe Fegan writes a lot from a sociological perspective about white privilege. 
Uh, he has some articles as well that are kind of shorter and, and I think accessible. And how does, what's his last name? I'm sorry. Fegan, uh, okay. F-E-A-G-I-N. Okay, I great. Yeah. We've been talking to Dr. Krista Stevens about teaching racial justice. Dr. Stevens is the Annisfield Wolf Fellow at John Carroll University. Thank you, Krista. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Theology for Teachers is produced by Edward P. Hannenberg, the Breen Chair in Catholic Theology at John Carroll University, in collaboration with The Living Person Media. John Carroll is a Jesuit Catholic University in Cleveland, Ohio. To learn more, visit www.theologyforteachers.com. That's theologyforteachers.com. Dot com.